the funny thing about ultra running is a lot of people will say you're running from something and I can remember vividly saying to people, but that's not me. Like, I don't know why I run, I just run. And so it was really a time when I had to go, yeah, that is me. That was Trina Cellino, and this is episode 88 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Trina Cellino is a married mother of three from Atlanta, Georgia. She grew up in eastern Washington state in the Columbia Valley. Trina started running 10 years ago at the age of 48 when a hiking friend wanted to run a marathon and invited her along. After completing a few road marathons, she found trail running and never looked back. Now at the age of 58, Trina states her favorite distance is the 100 miler and she's become a sought after ultra running coach. I met Trina and shared some miles with her at the Tahoe Rim Trail Endurance Run 100 mile race in 2019. We kept in touch and recently reconnected at the Gorge Waterfalls 100K in April. It was there, in our PJs, as we laid out our race gear in our hotel room, that I discovered Trina was a devoted fan of the show and also had her own very powerful story to share. In this episode, we talk about Trina's favorite races and moments on course, the things to consider in choosing your next big race, the U.S. Good Ultra Running Coaching Certification and why she completed it, as well as we dive into how life stress plays an integral part in how we train and race, and Trina shares her personal cumulative trauma experience. Finally, we talk about how running has been her companion as she ran away and then back towards on a figurative out and back course of healing and life. Trina opens up and shares her intimate story in a way that only one who has gone to a very dark place and been saved by grace and forgiveness can do. Her courage and faith have brought her tremendous insight, and we know there is someone out there who needs to hear her story. Episodes like this are why Inspired Souls podcast exists. Let us introduce you to Trina. So Trina, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. How are you tonight? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. I know you've admitted to being like a serious listener of our podcast. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's great to have you on. I just wanted to give the our listeners a little bit of background as to about how we met um, and came to know each other, because I think it's just such a indicative of how the trail to running community works. So 2019, just before COVID, the year before COVID, uh, Trina and I were both at the Tahoe 100 mile race, Tahoe endurance run. And we met each other at like the pre-race kind of meetup night they had on Thursday night. And we happened to be sitting across a table from each other. And I remember you, Trina, because right away you were talking about having completed UTMB recently. And I'm, I was still awestruck and still am about UTMB, but you had this pacer. What was your pacer's name? Uh, Sherry. Sherry. She's sitting beside you. She's got this forearm cast on, like ready to pace you with the <laughs> cast. I think she had fallen trail running and broken her wrist as well. Am I correct in that? I think she did. Yes. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, how badass are these two ladies <laughs> like oh my god like don't get ahead of them so anyways we ended up um starting the race leapfrogging a little bit throughout the race uh right. finishing not that far apart 
and managed to keep in touch over the last two and a half years. Uh, Fast forward to the Gorge Waterfalls 100K, uh, April 2nd, I think it was in uh, Oregon, in Portland. And we had been in touch on Facebook. So, you know, it can be a blessing and a curse. But the one thing it's done is kept, you know, certain people uh, allowed us to get to know each other. And long story short, we ended up sharing a hotel room, ended up (laughs) chatting, you know, the whole weekend, running half of the race together and becoming, well, let's just say solidifying a dear friendship. So as part of that weekend, I invited Trina on the podcast to share a little bit about what we chatted about all weekend. So was it crazy or was it not that we just ended up becoming roommates as strangers pretty much? Okay. Okay. Yes. Very, very strange. I had friends that (laughs) said, what you are going to stay in a hotel room with someone you hardly know. And um, I was trying to explain, um, well, she's an ultra runner. Like she's safe. Like we, we all uh, are family. It was so crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just saying before the show, I'm like, you, the number one vetting question is, okay, you're a runner. Yeah. Trail ultra runner. Okay. Yeah. Like you, yeah, you're good. You're good. Like, <laughs> I can totally trust you with my life. But yeah. We, uh, we determined there was no point us each paying for separate rooms and the rest was history. So anyways, it's going to be great to let Carolyn get to know you a little bit more as well as our listeners, you have some amazing things to share. So let's dive into it. Why don't you just give us a little bit more detail as to who is Trina Chilino? Okay, well, I um, live in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a little bit different because Kim's in Canada. So I was always really impressed that I would meet a runner from Canada. But anyway, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm married and I have um, three grown children, two older daughters and a younger son. And I actually grew up in Eastern Washington. So the West Coast and especially the Pacific Northwest is kind of home to me. I work basically as a full-time finance manager for a nonprofit organization. I also work as a ultra running coach. Okay. Well, that that all sounds fascinating. We could dive down a big old (laughs) rabbit hole with that. But maybe now you could tell us just a little bit about how you got into running and particularly ultra running because we understand that you weren't always a runner. So you got into it in your 40s, right? Yes. uh, Yeah. As a kid, I played um, a little basketball or actually a lot of basketball. And I did track just one year. Did not like track um, at all when I was a kid. And then um, at age 48, I kind of decided to get in shape by hiking and started, joined an outdoor club. So there was hiking and and different activities. So my hiking kind of turned into running because I got into some fitness hikes that were a little bit fast for my Mm -hmm. fitness walking. So anyway, I started um, kind of running and and getting to know other people in this group. And um, one of the girls that I had met in this group um, wanted to run, um, well, first she wanted to run a half marathon, then she wanted to run a marathon. And I was like, uh, it's not even on my bucket list. I had never even crossed my mind, but she happened to be a breast cancer survivor. And I just, my heart went out to her. She was a single mom, had breast cancer and went through all of that treatment and all of that. And I thought to myself, if she could survive that, I could probably survive 26.2 miles. And so we trained together and ran the Chicago Marathon in 2013. And it was like just this fabulous experience that I 
just really, really enjoyed that, that whole experience of doing that. After that, I ran a few more road marathons because I had trained really hard and ran that with her and, and did it for her. And I thought, well, now I should like run one for me. So I did that a little bit, but didn't love, love the roads and, and stuff mm -hmm. doing marathons. I couldn't, I don't have the pace to chase after Boston so much. So I, because I'd been hiking and involved in outdoor club, I found trail running, I guess. I'm not really sure how I learned about it. I guess maybe I met somebody. Um, but anyway, once I found like trails and trail running and, and, and races and then a trail marathon, that was like it. Okay. I'm like, this is, this is my place. And this is where I want to be is on the trails. I just loved it from the very beginning. So trail marathon and then a trail ultra, just to say I've done one. So I signed up for a 50 K and then after I did a 50 K, of course, that's like, oh, I think I'll sign up for the Georgia death race. Cause that just sounds like it'd be so much fun. <laughs> and, um, it's like probably like the Canadian death race, right? Like not the easiest thing to jump into, but leading up to it, I did do like another 50 K 50 miles. I progressed, but not like a lot of experience, just a little bit. And then after the death race, of course, the next step is a hundred. So that's, I did that a few months later and that was my first hundred. And it's like, everybody has their favorite. And that was always my favorite, the hundred. What do you love about the hundred? Um, I think that um, part of it is it's really challenging and it requires you to kind of problem solve, you know, kind of mm -hmm. like use, mm -hmm. use your, use a little bit of mind to problem solve. So it like, it uses, it's not just a running skill, like I'm going to run really fast for mm -hmm. 50K or something like that. You're out there overnight. You're, mm -hmm. um, you, there's so many different things to it that I think it's the combination of so many things and the problem solving and then the community and, and all the different things that go into the hundred miler versus, you know, you're not going home to sleep in your own bed. You're staying up all yep. night. So you got that challenge, you know, just all these little things that go together, you're eating, you're, you're drinking, you're, you know, sleeping, whatever it is, all of those mm -hmm. things rolled into this great big challenge of doing it. And I, I feel like more so in a hundred than any other distance, when you step up to the start line, you don't know if you're going to finish it. I mean, there is no guarantee. Yeah. So much can happen. It owes you nothing. Yeah. Right. But a 50K and 50 miler, unless they're really tight cutoffs or something like that, you can pretty much, you know, at some point you feel like, okay, I, I can do that. But I never feel that way in a hundred. I always feel like you don't know what the day is going to bring. Right. And sometimes it's weather. Sometimes who knows, right. Just all these things can be challenging. And so I, I do like the challenge of figuring things out, you know, I find it kind of curious because in our regular life, like even just picture during COVID, right? Like what people really hated about it is the uncertainty. You couldn't plan mm -hmm. anything. You can, whereas right. it almost sounds like you're being drawn to the uncertainty in, in a way with the right. hundred, right? It's like the 50 K isn't so much of a challenge because I know I'm going to finish it, but the hundred, like anything could happen and anything yeah. could go wrong. And I'm going to have to solve for that. Would that be accurate? Do you think to say like, it is the uncertainty? And, and then if, if so, how does somebody go about embracing uncertainty in their everyday life based on uh, what you've learned from trail running? 
Well, I would say you can't have success without the possibility of failure. So some of the other shorter races, it's not that I'm sure that I can finish them. They just don't have that challenge. So to me, the the longer distance has that more of a challenge that when you succeed or when you cross the finish line, no matter where the front or the back or where you cross, it, it, it's a different kind of success. It's this success that really speaks to me because there's such a huge possibility of failure. Um, I don't remember the exact stats, but I think nearly 40% of people who start 100 milers do not finish. That's like an average. So that's huge, right? So you, (laughs) and that's an average. Some races are closer to 70. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you, so you get up there and, and you've trained hard, you've worked hard, but yeah, I do like that unknown of anything can happen. Right. And you have to kind of embrace the bad stuff that, comes at you and kind of, you know, problem solve. And then maybe more so than any other distance, they talk about the DNF so much, like they didn't finish. And and it's huge because if 40% of the people aren't finishing, there's all these people that have poured their hearts into training and going out and maybe even getting, I, I mean, you hear of people who get 95 miles in a race and don't finish, oh, right? So how heartbreaking is that? I've seen that in a race before. Um, I've see, seen a race where somebody literally fell on the ground with back spasms at mile 100. And that year they just happened to reroute the race and it was now 103 miles. And literally they made it a hundred miles, mm-hmm. but finished. couldn't finish. And so, yeah, it's, it's just the unknown of it. That's um, it's challenging. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I kind of also wonder this sometimes. So if the, DNF rate is so high, does that impact how seriously people train? Because like, I feel sometimes like if it's so high, there might be a certain type of person that is like, well, I'm just not going to put in all the training. And then when I don't succeed, I can say that it's because I didn't train hard enough. You know, like, how do you really get yourself so prepared? Because like, if you train really, really hard, and then you still don't finish, is there a part of you that's like, Oh, well, that was my best. Like, I can't do any better than that. I don't know if the question's clear. Do you understand the question? Mm. I'm interested to hear your answer on this one. Well, so I think a lot of people don't take responsibility for when they don't finish stuff. You Mm -hmm. do see the excuses of, oh, well, I I got injured. I was, you know, wasn't at my best. I wasn't ready. And I mean, I see that all the time. It's a social media thing, I think, more than anything. Um, I think just as an athlete, it's important to take a, a look at those things, you know, a little bit of self-examination. It's hard to put it out there that it's on you, but we we all like to blame somebody else. So we were talking a little bit earlier and every hundred mile race is so different, right? Like you have mountain races, you have flatter races, you have, you know, just different races with different challenges to them. And I think like when people say, Hey, what's an easy 100, the first thing you're thinking, (laughs) they're thinking is something flat. And that's not necessarily easy either. A hundred miles is a long ways. It's a hundred miles. Anything can happen. Just as many people DNF, maybe more in a flat race than a tough mountain race. So it's interesting to kind of look at all that science behind all that and what leads to all that stuff. And I think you can't possibly finish 100 if you go into it not irrationally confident. 
Like you have to, like, it's like, let's be honest, a hundred miles. Once you've covered it on foot, you realize how freaking far it is. And to go in anything less than 100% committed is going to be a DNF. It just is. And even if you go in 100% committed, it's not a guaranteed (laughs) finish. Right. So I actually, when you mentioned that, Carolyn, I've never thought of that before that somebody might say, oh, there's a high DNF rate. Therefore, it's my excuse. If anything, and maybe this is just me, I would take a high DNF rate of let's train triple. Right. Let's go in like crazy commando style on this one because it's going to be so hard, you know, rather than using that as a, a cop out. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but um no, I think uh, that's true. And I think when you sign up for a race, will be like that. Ultra runners will be like that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that you have to look at the races that you're running too, and you look at what are those races challenges and, and why. Like I remember doing one early on and the cold temperatures at night were one of the things that caused them to have a high DNF rate. So again, you kind of have to look at all those things and maybe be prepared for what's ahead of you. But I agree. I, th- I think you know what you're signing up for and you train harder probably, or you train smarter for what smarter. you're going to, yeah. for what you're going to be facing. Yeah. Okay. So there's so many directions I want to go right from here, but let's come back to choosing the race. Cause I want to go back there, how to choose those races and train properly for those races. But I mean, you have run and completed races. I don't know everywhere, like everywhere. Every time I ask you about something, you've done that race, you know about that race. So I know this is going to be a practically impossible question for you to answer, but do you have like top three, five, like what are your favorite races that you've done? Uh, okay. So obviously the number one is UTMB. I can't like nothing will ever top UTMB and not just because it's UTMB, but because my experience there was just so over the top, it was such a great experience. I love going to places like Tahoe that was so, so beautiful. I thought the bear was absolutely gorgeous. And so Where's was that one? the bears in Utah, part of the Wasatch Mountains. And it starts in Utah and finishes in Oregon or not Oregon, Idaho. So, and then I also really loved in Wyoming, I did um, Bighorn. And that was gorgeous, just gorgeous. And do you ever run a race twice or are you always looking for something new? Nope, I don't run any. Well, I said, say, not say no. I should say I don't run any 100 mile race twice. Obviously, I've already said I'm, I'm, did I say I'm 58 years old? I'm 58 years old. I started when I was 48. So by the time I started running hundreds, I'm like, "Um, okay, let's say I ran four a year, which to me would be one a quarter. That's That's a lot. lot. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's people, we know crazy people that run them once a month or even every few weeks, it seems like, which is to me is too much. I can't do that. I want to be running when I'm 70. And I, so I want to take care of my body and I want to recover and I want to do it in a healthy way. Even though I know saying I run a hundred is not healthy per se. (laughs) Um, But That being said, I have a huge bucket list of races I'd love to run, and I can't run them all over and over and over and run the ones I want to run. So I kind of have to be selective about what's on my bucket list and what I really want to run. And so I run everything once. And and it doesn't mean I wouldn't love to run some of them multiple times and go, oh, maybe I could do better or have a different experience. But I just feel like um, I don't have time to run 
them yeah. more than once. Okay. So I also want to ask you something here because I've thought about this a bit. I'm the same as you. I'm like, the, there's a big old world out there and there's only so much of me and so much money and time for me yes, to get to all exactly. these places because these are right? cheap races, right? And the traveling. But you also spoke to the the challenge, the unknown, the curiosity. And and to me, running a new course, is that's huge. I, I, I might see it on the map. I might know in theory. I might have watched a few YouTube videos of somebody with their GoPro. But you still don't really know what's coming right. around that corner or what hour 15 is going to bring you or whatever. And that's a big part of the charm. I've only done one long ultra twice. I DNF'd it my second DNF of my life. And I, I'll admit this one's on me. I knew it was coming. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to go up that mountain. I know it's coming. <laughs> like it was a huge mental, like, yes, I was having some physical issues, but let's be honest. Like the mind is always stronger than the body if it wants to be. And I was just, I knew it was coming. I didn't have any curiosity. I'd seen it before. I'd done it before. And I was like, that's it. And so I, I know myself enough to know that if I'm going to commit all this money, all this time, all this training, it needs to be a new course for me every time. I don't know. Yeah. Is that in any way, way into what you're feeling as well? Yeah. I think that like, if you go 50 K or 50 miles repeating is doable, you know, just from the yeah. same course over and over for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree with that. I would say that almost sometimes too much course knowledge has its good and it's bad, right? You do know what's mm -hmm. coming. You've mm -hmm. seen all those views that climbed top of that big hill. Isn't a wow factor that you've never experienced before. So you don't know what's around the corner, you know, already like what's around the corner. You don't have that, um, course curiosity, I guess, if you want to yeah. call it that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that would be another reason for like the bucket list where you're picking races that are truly inspiring to you, right? Like yeah. I want to run some course. If I see something on social media and it looks beautiful or somebody says something, then I want to do more research and find yeah. out about it and see if it's really a race I want to run. They don't have to be like the most popular hundred mile races out there, but I, I want them to be beautiful, inspiring, you know, something that's exciting for me that I really want to win, to run because yeah. how will I ever be motivated to train or motivated to stick it out when things get tough. If I don't really want to run that race, if I'm just doing it because, oh, all my friends are doing it and they thought this would be a great race, but now I don't have a good reason why I want to do this. You as a coach have told me you're often asked, and not just as a coach, just as a very experienced ultra runner who's done so many different races, you could write the travel log of ultra running. Um, What's a good 50K? What's a good first 100? What's a good first 50 miler? How do you go about answering that question to somebody? You know, this is one of the great things about ultra running, I find, because like Carolyn, who likes to run roads, there is ultra runners that like to run roads. They like to run flat. They like to run different things. So we're all so different. So if somebody asked me what's a good, let's say, 100 mile race, I want to ask you t about 20 questions before I could even begin to answer your question, because I want to know, do you like flats? Do you like, you know, hills? Do you like the mountains? Do you like technical? Do you, are you willing to travel? Hot, cold, right, like right. Yeah. Hot, cold. What time of year do you want to train? How far yes. do you want to travel? Are you looking for something local? Are you look, are you looking to travel and go somewhere? How far away do you want to travel? All of these things 
are huge. What kind of race experience do you want? Because do you want a lot of support from the from the mm. race? Some races have a lot and have great support. Other ones, okay, if you're a more experienced runner, that might be a better, you know, might be something you're, you you yeah. could do. But a brand new runner, that might not be the thing. I don't know. Loops back out and back. Yeah. You know, yes. like all yeah. those one big loop versus multiple little loops. It's yeah. they're all so different. So what you're speaking to is really trying to find the motivators and the person's why for doing yeah. that race. Well, I always like if I have an athlete who's looking for a race, my my thing is, you know, asking some of those questions, making them think what 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 would be inspiring to you? Again, if you're not really inspired to run the race, then you're not going to be inspired to train for it. And then when it gets tough in the middle of the race to actually keep going and push through, you know, some of those painful or bad times, you know, our feet are going to hurt, our, we're going to be tired and sleepy, our stomachs might not be cooperating. How bad do you want it? And you're willing to push through it. The more that you pick something that really excites you and inspires you is going to help you with mm -hmm. those things. And that goes get, with road running as well as trail running. So yes, like we're not absolutely. just thinking about crazy long two day races here. We're also, it, it applies to right. any distance, I think. Yeah, I agree. Right. Like the people that do the loops, you know, we've seen the Camille Herons. I love her, but you know, I could not get on a track and just run around a track and do however many miles, you know, a hundred and some yeah. miles. It's not my thing. And we just had someone, Kim, remember Pam Smith was talking yeah, about that. Yeah. And it was like, she would do that on a track, but she draws the line at a treadmill because she said on the track, at least there's that camaraderie of like, you're passing people, people are passing oh. you and you see people a lot. That mm -hmm. would be even more so than in a regular race where yeah. you mm -hmm. kind of are with the same, like two or three people the whole or time. Or nobody. You could or be out nobody. by yourself for hours exactly. in, in right. an ultra anyways. Um, so I see yeah. what you're saying about really needing to drill down and get curious and understand like where running is fitting into this person's life and, and what gets them fired up. And honestly, I bet you some people appreciate that. Like some people think they want to be told what to do, but really the discovery is in like what what do I actually want to do? And and for some of us, we don't really know until we get asked the, those 20 questions. Well, think of, think about the very question of somebody asking, what's an easy hundred? Okay. Yeah. There is <laughs> no easy hundred. Thing. And if you are looking for an easy yeah. one, maybe you shouldn't be running a hundred, right? Yes. So it's yeah. the wrong question. <laughs> maybe, Absolutely. Maybe a hundred is not for you if you're looking for an easy one. You know, yeah. if you ask me what a great one is, I could help you. But again, I still have to know all these questions as to what you like and what motivates you. And there are people that love to run around tracks and there are ultra runners just like someone who runs in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. You have uh, obviously run a lot of places in the last 10 years. So does anything kind of stand out as a favorite memory, a most surprising memory? What stands out as, as something that you remember from your last 10 years of running? Okay, so I'd have to go back to UTMB. <laughs> so f first of all, just getting into UTMB is just like incredible. And I was really fortunate to really start collecting uh, points to get into UTMB very early. Right. And <clears throat> it, the system had just changed. I don't even know the system anymore to get in. It's like this mystery, right? But at the time that I got in, you had to have 15 points and you had to get them over three races. So 
uh, like a hundred mile race might be, let's say six points, maybe, you know, maybe five, I don't know. So anyway, you had to have three races, 15 points. So two years and I get in to the lottery. And at the time you also, and I think you can still do this, sign up as a team. So let's say Kim and I want to go run UTMB. We both sign up together on the same team. If she gets in, I get in, we both get in. Mm -hmm. I think that the reason for that is so we could travel together and go do it. Not necessarily, you don't have to run together. And actually, once you both get in, you don't even both have to go. It's just that you're, you sign up as a team. So you get in, you can go together to experience that. I happen to sign up with a friend. We got in, we don't live in the same place. It would be like Kim and I showing up to run it and not really <laughs> train together. And could we run this together, you know? And so you have to have your plan. Like, are you going to stay together? Maybe you're not. I don't yes. know. Um, and you don't just like get crew to go to France with you to no, like, crew yeah. you, you know? So it's just this huge thing. But anyway, when I got into UTMB, almost at the same time I got in, I had a, another really close friend, a running friend, and she got diagnosed with cancer. And um, of course, it, there's a theme here. It seems like it always comes back to, to a friend with cancer. But anyway, she had this rare cancer, had to have surgery, and then she had to go through six months of chemo. And her six months of chemo started about the time I got drawn in the lottery and started training. So I really dedicated my whole year of racing and running to her. And so during that six months, she went through chemo. And every Monday I would go meet her and we would walk because she wanted just to keep walking. And so we'd walk together and I'd spend, you know, her whole time. And so her chemo, she rang the bell for chemo about two weeks before I went to UTMB. Mm. So it was, it was really That's like cool. Amazing. So she, yeah. so it was kind of like, we started this thing. It was like two women, two challenges and two mountains, right? Oh, her mountain yeah. figuratively. And mine was real, real, real mountains. Right. Yeah. So I'm running it probably, I don't know, somewhere around maybe mile 55 or 60. We had to do this big, this huge climb and it was dark. It was at night and it was really, really cold. And I started getting kind of hypothermic and I had, I had like pulled a muscle or pulled, um, something in my groin and I'm thinking, this is it. Okay. I'm, I'm not, going to finish this race. Right. I was kind of like, almost like thinking to myself, you know, you talk yourself out of stuff like it's okay. It, this is way too hard for me. I don't even know how I got here and how I'm in this race to begin with, because it is so hard. So we're coming off this mountain and we've just barely stayed ahead of the cutoffs anyway. So we're constantly pushing every, you know, stressful aid station to make the cutoffs. And we're probably like an hour and a half to maybe half an hour ahead every time we come in. So we come down to this one and I'm probably about two miles out. It's in the dark. UTMB is crazy because people are all over the mountains cheering for you. And it's in the middle of the night and these like three girls, I think are out on this trail and I come by and they like start clapping and cheering. Every runner has your state flag, like flag is on your bib. And then I had it on my back also. And so as soon as they saw I was from the United States, they're like, go USA. Um, make us proud or something like that. And I'm thinking, don't say that to me. I'm about to quit, right? Like I'm thinking, <laughs> don't put the weight of the USA on my shoulders. I can't take that. <laughs> so, but anyway, I come into the aid station and this particular aid station, every aid station, you kind of cross over a mat where they pick up your timing chip and, and know that you're in the aid station. They know when you check in and when you check out, cause you have to you know, cross a mat in and out. So they know right where you're at all the time. So when I 
stepped into the aid station, there is this gigantic big screen. And all I see this whole wall is like this big screen and up cues this video from my friends. And (gasps) I'm going to quit. But there on the video is my friend who's had cancer. She's she's wearing her scarf because, you know, she doesn't have any hair. And they're cheering for me and sent me this video to say, yay, go Trina, go Trina. And I look at her and I go, I can't quit. She didn't quit. I can't quit. I did not miss cutoffs. I still had like 20 or maybe 30 minutes ahead of cutoffs. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I can't quit. She didn't quit. So it was just kind of like, I just kept going and we ended up finishing. It was like the most... I don't, I can't even tell you come into Chamonix and there's just literally hundreds and hundreds of people just cheering for you and, and clapping and the, the announcer announcing your name. And, and, you know, it was just the most exciting finish, but it was, it was neat because of my experience. And because she was that thing that pushed me to keep going when I was like telling myself, I can't do this. It's too hard. And then I'm looking at a cancer survivor going, Okay, you can't quit. You you can't. That's not an option. Oh my goodness. Okay, you're now officially the second podcast guest that has brought tears to my eyes. That is such an amazing story. And back to my whole we get to choose our suffering when we do these things, right? Yes. She did not get to choose. Hers. Right. And right. you know, it puts it really into perspective of uh, what right do I have? <laughs> To, right. To quit. right. I don't like I have a choice here. Some people don't have that choice. Right. Um, wow. What a story. Okay. And to see her face up there and she's wearing her, oh. you know, her bandana with with, you know, I've I've watched her go through chemo and cancer and everything and seen her cry and her struggles and and seen her ring the bell. And I'm like, I, I, I mean, I can't quit. It, it was an, it was a really, really very moving and very intense moment. And then crossing the finish line was just the celebration of all of that. Yeah. Well, okay. Yet one more added reason for me to get over there eventually someday. Yes, you will. But okay. Will. I will. Um, let's, let's take a little bit of a different turn here and let's talk a bit more about uh, Trina, the ultra running coach. Okay. Well, so as you said, I have like this resume of races I've run because I don't repeat them. And so I have quite the number of hundred miles I finished. So a lot of people will come up to me and ask me, do you coach? I, I mean, I didn't find that especially unusual when people asked me that, but I went through this period where constantly somebody was asking me, do you coach? Do you coach? No. And it was always me jumping into this reason why I didn't coach. I don't coach because I don't know how to coach. How would I coach somebody else? I don't know what to tell them. I don't know, you know, all the, the specifics to training. It's not, it's not just, oh, I could tell you to go run a hundred miles this week, or I mean, you know, train for a hundred miles by running like 20 miles this week and however many miles next week, we can all pull those plans off of the internet and tell someone how to run. Um, but I have always used a coach or not always, but I used a couple different coaches that I really, really loved. And I saw a lot of positive things in using a coaches, someone who, um, encourages me, supports me, believes in me. And so I wasn't opposed to let, let's say having a coach or using a coach. I just had all these reasons why I shouldn't coach. Cause I don't know how to coach. So then, um, I got 
a couple coaches reaching out to me, asking me questions. And I'm like, okay, that does it. I probably need to like become a coach. <laughs> I'm someone who's always wanting to help people and share what I've learned. I mean, over the years from the very, very first time I ran a 50K, I started a blog and I started a Facebook group just to share my running experience so that as I learned things, because I knew when I first started, I had run a you know, 50K. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what shoes to wear. I don't know anything about what to hydration, food. I mean, just so many things I didn't know. So I started all those things just to kind of share my journey, thinking if I don't know, maybe there's other people who don't know, and that if I could share my ups and downs, not just the good and the positive, but the ugly, you know, everything that goes wrong, because not everything goes great. Um, so that I'm just kind of that person. I'm always encouraging to other people, but I'm always so happy to share. If I've got something that I could tell you that might help you, I'd be happy to tell you, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people thought that for me to become a coach, that was just like the natural next step, that it was just, you, yeah, you should do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I started asking other coaches what kind of certifications they had, what, what did it take to become a coach, right? Because I knew I didn't know. Um, it's kind of like when you first become a, a maybe a runner, but an ultra runner for sure. You don't know what you don't know. And I felt mm -hmm. the same way with coaching. I don't know what I don't know. So I wanted to make sure that I, I got certified and actually knew how to help somebody and how to coach somebody. So it was really fortunate that USCA, which is United Endurance Sports Coaching Association, had just recently come out with a ultra running coaching certification. And as far as I know, they are still the only one that has that certification that's for ultra running specific. So when you take the course, it's very intense. Um, just the um, syllabus was like 23 pages long. And I was just like, oh my gosh, it's the manual to take the course is like 700 pages. And, and, um, so it's a very, it's a very thorough and intense course, but at the same time, I knew that if I wanted to be a coach, that I wanted to be that coach that knew all those things I didn't know, right. Like mm -hmm. to help yeah. somebody and to coach somebody anyway. So I, 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 yeah, took the course and, and got certified. And, and that course is um, renowned ultra running coach, Jason Coop, mm -hmm. who I love dearly, but he's a very science-based type coach who looks at the science and looks at what we can prove and what we know. And of course, with ultra running, there's so much that hasn't been studied. So, you know, you're taking this course and you're learning, you know, sometimes what fits for a, a road runner or that's what's been studied, but, you know, kind of trying to caution you on some of those things, right? Like, you can't extrapolate it necessarily. Yeah. Right. I, how much of those 700 pages is reference lists and, and journal articles? I wonder like Jason Coop, I'm sure if there is a study out there, he's probably got it in his course mm -hmm. and he's either critiquing it or supporting it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think yeah. that's true that there's, there's, it is science-based. It's definitely very science-based. You spend the first, like, I don't know, four or five modules studying the muscular system, the skeletal system, the, you know, all the, yes, yeah. all these things. I, I think one of the other things I truly, truly liked about this particular teaching was they really teach you that you cannot speak 
on an area that you're not, you're not qualified to, to, to talk about. So like I can talk to somebody about weightlifting or nutrition or some of these other things, because that's not my expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I appreciate the fact that they are not trying to get you to a point where you just feel, oh, I know everything. I can just jump in and coach somebody and tell them all these things. They really do teach you not only what what you need to know to be a, an ultra running coach, but also what your limitations are on what you know. You know, mm-hmm. this is what we're teaching you and this is what you know. You don't know this and you don't know that. And you yes. can't you can't diagnose injuries and you can't like tell someone how to do PT and things like that because that's not what you're qualified unless you are qualified to do that. But for the most part, uh, this course is not going to qualify you for that. And they just came out with a endurance nutrition course, but it's specific to endurance athletes. So I'm sure it applies to marathoners, but triathletes and um, um, ultra runners. So I've started that course, but I'm not very far into it. And I'm not doing it to coach nutrition and be a nutrition coach, but just so that I have an added value and I can speak with my runners that do have nutrition problems because that's a huge huge thing in, um, Mm -hmm. I think in ultra running, it's one of those factors that leads to DNF when people can't figure out the nutrition or even DNS did not start. Right. Like if, if you're not feeling your body properly, that can lead to injury and it can lead to overtraining syndrome and all that kind of stuff. Carolyn, I know you feel very passionately about both of these subjects. You're also taking, um, a USGA course as well, correct? Yeah. So obviously not the ultra running one, but they just have like the running one. They have a cycling one and something else. I can't remember, but yes. And, and I agree with you. It's, it's very thorough. And it's so funny that you say like, you know, I took the course because I wanted to like know what I didn't know. And then you end up like 723 (laughs) pages later. And it's like, do I know more or do I know less? Because like yeah. now I just know everything that I don't know. So um, too funny, right. but in a way it just sounds like, and I think this is probably the experience that a lot of runners turned coaches have is that it almost seems like coaching chose you, right? It was through your yes. own running mm-hmm. and, and just running so many races and, you know, eventually so many people asked for, your advice that it's like you fell into coaching and then and got the certification to shore up all, any of the knowledge gaps there. But um, what, how do you feel like having taken the course now has helped you to become a better coach than you would have been if you just sort of said, well, this worked for me, like it, it should work for you too. <laughs> like that's yeah, probably yeah. the worst advice a coach could ever give, right? Right. Um, I, I think the whole thing about even the whole training in general, um, again, Coop is a very science-based person. And most of like, let's say you download a program offline. A lot of those are run this this many miles this day, this day, this day, this day. You, you find out as a coach that there's a hundred different ways. I should say that, right? Because mm-hmm. I like hundred milers, right? There's a hundred okay. different ways to get to a finish line and to get yeah. to the start line. So you can train so many different ways and not everybody's the same. We're all different. So I think I've learned a lot more about there's so many other things in our life that can change how we get to that start line or how we get to the finish line. Because it could be what you like 
someone's a vegan, someone's a this, someone's that. Okay. So you got those things, but somebody has a really highly stressful job and they can't run all the time or they have family stresses or they have little kids. Things look different for everybody. Um, And so I think that I am really much more of a rounded, even my own thinking as a runner about all those Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And, um, it doesn't look the same for any two people. And so therefore, when you download something offline and you're following some stock plan, let's say, mm-hmm. you don't have someone who's in touch with you and, and and says, you know, asking you about the stress that's going on in your life or how you're feeling, you know, every other day. Mm-hmm. So they have a good understanding of um, where you're at. I know Jason Coop in particular, is he's big into communicating with his athletes and, and getting feedback on how they're feeling and their, their runs. And, um, all of that changes how we might train someone, what we might prescribe to Mm -hmm. them to do. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, you talk about how, how our life experiences or life stressors really play into our ability to run. You've, you've also talked to me in, in, in our pajama parties that we've had (laughs) about some of the stressors you've experienced in your own life and how you've recently become much more self-aware of, you know, maybe some of the motivators you've had for running and what running has meant to you and, and the journey that it has taken you on in the last 10 years. So I, let's go there now. Let's talk a little bit more about how running has maybe made you a better person, maybe made you a more self-aware person, what lessons it's taught you and, you know, just how it's helped you deal with some of the stress in your own life. So going back to being a young child, I grew up in a home with an abusive mother and my mother was just not physically abusive, but she was also very mentally abusive. And that was a type of abuse that said, you're fat, you're ugly, you know, all those kinds of things that, that, that she didn't love me. So eventually, and my parents were divorced when I was young. So eventually I went to live with my dad and my stepmom. And looking back now, I look back and say, when I walked out of her house, that's when I really started running away from everything. You, you want to just shut the door to all that abuse, close it off, put the walls up and pretend that never happened. So I just kind of moved on with my life. She was basically, after a few years, kind of estranged from all of her children, and that was kind of her choice. I probably would have kept in touch with her, but she did not want any contact really with us. She just kind of said, you know, she just kind of moved away and and didn't want anything to do with us. So uh, unfortunately, in 2019, she suffered a massive stroke, and that stroke left her paralyzed, and she obviously didn't have anybody to help her. And so my sister who lived locally kind of stepped up and was helping her to not take care of her per se. She was in a rehab facility, but she obviously couldn't live on her own anymore and she needed to go to a facility. So my sister had kind of said, well, I will help get you to that facility. And, and, you know, kind of said, that's all I'm going to do. But unfortunately, before that even happened, my sister's husband tragically got diagnosed and passed away like in a matter of 10 days with cancer. And when that happened, my sister kind of said, I'm done. I'm checked out. You have to step in now. And, and I think I did it not for her, but I did it for my sister, right? Like my, I went and spent 
this time with my sister to help her through the loss of her husband and, and all that that dealt with, and then stepping in with this biological mother. And when I first saw her again for the first time after 20 years, I was like this little child that was just shaking in my boots to see her because she was just so abusive and I was afraid of her still. So anyway, so I kind of stepped in and had to help get her, you know, find a facility that would take her and deal with all her financial stuff. And she had a um, power of attorney who lived in Texas. So she also didn't have anybody else locally to help her. And I didn't live locally either, but COVID hit, you know, I couldn't really do much to help her, but, you know, we kind of just took care of what we could in the facility and made sure that she was taken care of. And I was her contact person. And, you know, if she needed something, I could Amazon something to her, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, um, and then towards the end of 2020, she, she was finally put on hospice. And when she was put on hospice in the state of Washington at the time, if you were on hospice, then somebody could come into a facility and see you at, at that point when, when COVID shut everything down, you couldn't go into the facilities at all. So I couldn't have ever seen her, even if I lived locally, you couldn't go in there. Mm -hmm. But now that she was on hospice, you could go in and see her. So it was like the beginning of December. I had to wait till after Christmas. I bought a ticket to go out there and spend like 10 days so I could kind of see her in her, you know, final days or whatever. I assumed that I didn't know how long she would live. Right. So, um, I go out there and, and visit her and she wasn't really, I mean, she was conscious and she was talking to me, but she was also kind of talking crazy. Like, you know, like, are we, do we have the same mom? And I'm like, uh, no, you're my mom. So she's a little bit out of her, like mm -hmm. not, not quite there. Right. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So I saw her and kind of, you know, said my goodbyes uh, as best I could and, and, and left and went back to Georgia. And as soon as I got back to Georgia, the hospice guy called me up and said, are you still here? Because she took a huge turn and, and now she's imminent death. And I'm like, I just got back. I, I can't come back out there, you know? So he goes, I, I think she waited for you to come. And, and, you know, that's maybe why she took this turn. So I felt, um, I don't, I'm not exactly sure if I know exactly how I felt, but I felt very heartbroken. Like I was just grieved that I now could not be there for her when, you know, I wanted to do the right thing and be there for her at the end of, of her, her life. So I spent probably the next six weeks, um, in Atlanta, just like I couldn't deal with it. It was so heavy on me every day, kind of waiting for them to call me to tell me that, she'd passed away. And pretty soon some of my close friends said, you have to go back. Like this is like, they could tell I was physically sick because she was there alone and dying. And even though I wasn't close to her at all, and, and she was this person that, you know, I mean, who would have ever thought I would go back to be with her the end of her life. But I just grieved and grieved over her being by herself and, and me not being able to be there. So I um, was able to get a plane ticket and go back out. And she then lived another 10 days of me out there. She hadn't, she quit eating right before I came and quit drinking and was completely unconscious the entire time mm -hmm. that I was there. And I would come and sit with her during the day 
and then at night I would go back like to my sister's house and stay at my sister's house or go to my dad's house um, because there really wasn't room in her room to stay overnight. So it was kind of like I would visit during the day and the hospice people had kind of said to me, you know, don't feel bad if you're not here. You know, some people, they wait for people to leave so that they pass away like they as if they don't want people present and other people, you know, maybe do. But they were just trying to encourage me that, look, you have to take care of yourself. Leave when you need to leave. If she passes away when you're not here, do not. You have to just know that that's just how it is sometimes. So I I grew up out there. So I have all kinds of friends there. So it was sometimes I would be seeing my friends. And one of my girlfriends had asked me to do some short trail race, right, while I was out there. And so it was like, I had been there almost a week. And so the next day I was going to do this little short trail race. Like, I mean, a 6K or something weird, right? But I, I felt like the day before that race, when I was visiting her, that she was really, really going downhill. Like, so she would, half of her body was paralyzed because of the stroke. So she never could move that half of her body. And all she could do the whole week that I was there visiting her, she didn't speak. She never opened her eyes, but she had the one arm that she just kind of moved and she would just raise it up like to her head and put it back down. And that, that was the only thing that she really, really did. And so I felt like she wasn't moving. She was really much more quieter. Her breathing seemed you know, very shallow. And so I thought that night she would pass away. So I kind of made plans so that if something happened that, you know, I could quickly put on my sweats and go back down to the home and stuff, but they never called me. So the next day I got up and went and ran the race. And as soon as the race was over, I'm like, I rushed back there thinking, surely she's not like, how could she still be alive? And she was, and she was actually looking a little better like that kind of maybe that rally um, at the end of someone's life. And mm -hmm. so that day I, I went and showered and cleaned up after the race. And I went back over there and just said, I, I'm staying now. I, I'm not leaving until she leaves. This is, it was just like, I don't know, something I felt. So I stayed with her and, and that night um, sat by her bed. You know, there was not really anywhere to sit, but I kind of just sat on this little stool. And when I got tired, I kind of just would lean my head against the bed to kind of rest a little bit. And um, we had such a terror, not, not a good relationship at all. Like, obviously, this was a person that had not been nice to me ever. And um, as I was there with her, and I'd spent the whole week trying to tell her it's okay. You know, everybody's going to be okay. I had two other siblings and neither one of them wanted to see her. They, they chose not to see her in her final days. They wanted nothing to do with her. And I learned a lot about how we experience things different and it's okay. You know, like they didn't have to come and be there. I didn't hold that against them because we all just feel things and experience things differently. So what I felt was not at all what they felt, but I sat by her bed and I just started crying because I felt like my whole life, I was never good enough for this person. I was, I wasn't, I, there was nothing about me. She didn't, she just did not love me and I wasn't a good enough person and there was nothing I could do. And as I laid there or sat there with my head kind of on her bed, I'm just like, nothing is good enough for you. I've been here this whole time and that's not even good enough for you because I'm trying to help you 
I recognized that I was in this super dark place. Like I have never been in that dark a place ever in my life where I just was so dark and I couldn't like get out of that dark place and that dark feeling of your, this is just the last time you have to tell me and show me that I'm not good enough because nothing I can say to you is good enough. And in that moment, as I have my head leaned on the bed and I'm just crying and crying this hand touches me on the top of my head and she's not able to move her hand and she's not really able to put her arm to the top of my head. And I feel that that was either her hand or really the hand of God reaching out and touching me saying, it's going to be okay. You know, Mm -hmm. like you're, you're going to be okay. And, um, she, she passed away probably within the hour, right? Like I I can remember not long after that, hearing her take her final breath. And so that kind of left me in a place where I had to really take a hard look at what, what I believed about myself was all about what she had told me my entire life. And I, I had never faced that. I believed all the things that she said I was. And I, I uh, had to kind of begin to find my way out of that place. Oh, wow. So if I may, mm-hmm. I want to reference a blog post that you, you shared called running towards healing. And in it, you reference that you have been running away your whole life. And I'm going to just read a little excerpt from that. You said, I found that no matter how far I ran, no matter how many mountains I climbed, some things you can't run from. No matter how many mountaintop views we see, we can never unsee what's in the mirror in front of us every day. Every insecurity, every flaw, and everything we were told, or for one reason or another, believe about ourselves, it's there staring back at us. So you had this experience with your mother that for your whole life you'd been running away from. Something drew you back uh, towards it, uh, in, in an illogical way, really, if you sat back and really analyzed it out and took the emotion away, it didn't make sense, but there you were in your blog, you speak about how that played out a bit in your running as well. So talk to us a little bit more about maybe the healing that has come from both your experience being there with your mom at the end, as well as what you've experienced maybe in the mouth. Yes. And, and I, I've told a lot of people that, I mean, I did not, maybe, maybe I, I didn't go sit with her for her necessarily. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was for me. And I, and I was extremely drawn to go back and be with her. And I don't have an answer as to why it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Both of my brother and sister, like I said, didn't really want anything to do with her in the end. Um, and she'd hurt all of us in different ways. And we all were affected differently by it. I probably was the most sensitive of the three kids where my brother and my sister both had a little bit thicker skin to deal with some of that stuff. I honestly am not sure, but yeah, I came out of that whole experience realizing that I looked in the mirror and saw what she said I was, what she believed I was is what I believed about myself, you know, things. And I think that probably it was the very first time I admitted to have an eating disorder. I had never in my life admitted to that. I even suggested that the funny thing about ultra running is a lot of people, if you get around the ultra running community, a lot of people will say you're running from something. There's a lot of addicts 
ex-addicts in ultra running. Maybe they're, you know, ex-alcoholics, ex-drug addicts. I even know people that started running because they used to smoke. And so this was just, you know, something to get away from smoking or whatever it was, you know, and obviously a, a myriad of abuse. And I can remember vividly saying to people, but that's not me. Like, I don't know why I run. I just run and, and that's not me. And so it was really a time when I had to go, yeah, that, that, is, that is me, right? Like, I, I can't say that I run to run away from those things, but figuratively speaking, I'm running away from those things my entire life. I did not want to admit to them. I didn't want to see them. I didn't want to face them. So I was figuratively running away. And once uh, once all this happened, of course, with, with now being a runner, I could kind of see it completely differently because I could have that analogy of, yes, you, you are running away. And, and this, this, this is, you know, just owning up to what was really there, I guess, in front of me. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. Mm-hmm. You are. It's not yeah. really a question. It's a conversation, right? It's a conversation right. about where you've been, where, where you, you are and what's leading you forward. And, you know, you, you mentioned again in the same blog post, you know, how with your past safely left behind, I don't know if you always feel it's safely left behind. There's probably <laughs> days you go back to it. Um, but, you know, you're trying to create this, this positive person and you say, I wanted to make something of the mess. <laughs> and I like to say we do we need to make our mess our mission, right? We want to be a positive influencer in some way. So, you know, I commend you for running, but also for, like you said, trying to help people through your running experiences and through your journey. And thank you so much for sharing this very intimate, vulnerable story with us, because I think it's important to know that you know, you're a coach too, and you, you get it, you get it on so many levels that, you know, it's not just about the running. <laughs> it's not just about the plan on the fridge. There are so many things that the factor into that, and not only the stress of today, but the stress of, you know, the past and the future, mm-hmm. and all these things that weigh on us. And running is just one part of the fabric of our lives. And sometimes yeah. I think we take it far too seriously. <laughs> um, and yeah. we ask more of it than maybe we should. We ask it to be our our, our everything. Um, but we, we need to put it in the context of our lives. And I think you've really, without trying to, done a very good job of that in telling your story um, for us. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Well, I'm curious because yeah. you said that, you know, the whole time that you were running up until this yeah. experience with being with your mom at the end of her life, you claimed like, I'm not running away from anything. Yeah. yeah. Are you now as a coach a little bit more intuitive there mm-hmm. when you see mm-hmm. that happening perhaps in other people that aren't aware of it either? Uh, I, I do think so. So and as a coach, you have usually like a, some sort of intake form, right? Like you're asking a, a certain list of questions. And one of the things I do ask is about people's life stress. You know, what, what is stressful in your life? It might be a job, but it might be family. Sometimes it's not your immediate family. It could be your extended family, all these different things that are stressful. And um, I do think that 
maybe just being open with my story, especially with mm -hmm. my athletes and being just very open in general, it lets people, you know, be open back my, my thing. And, and that was a blog post that I shared. I actually just that whole thing that I wrote just poured out of me in a matter of 10 minutes. And it happened in between the first time I went out to see her and then before her death. And it was after her death that I decided I needed to share that story and that what I had written. And I specifically um, went to Trail Sisters, which is a, a community in the United States that advocates for women on a lot of different levels. And I wanted to specifically use that story because of the eating disorders and because of my running away and not really admitting to so many things, right? Like sometimes we don't admit to things because we don't want people to know, right? Like I didn't want people to know I had an eating disorder or that I, that, that I was anything less than what they see on the outside, right? Like we don't want people to see all that stuff. And there's some things that when people know about them, you can't like hide them anymore. So I, I think just me being able to be open and honest about whatever my past is and that maybe my athletes can then see maybe that they can, you know, open up about stuff and, and, you know, take a look at things. I don't know if I recognize it in them so much. It depends on how open and honest they are with me because most yeah. people I work with are not in person. So I don't see all that stuff in person, but I'm certainly really intuitive and listening and looking for the signs that somebody's had a stressful time and whether it's work or their job or family or yeah. whatever, and having a heart for that. Some people can run through that and they love to run during that. And there's other people like I went definitely through a time of just, it was like my legs just wouldn't move. And I just wanted to fall on the ground because all I wanted to do is just lay down on the trail and cry. And so like, like it was almost like my legs were heavy and my body just didn't want to go. But I know some people will deal with stress differently and maybe they running is the thing. And it, it did become the thing for me that, that helped me through it in a lot of ways because I needed that time outside and by myself and just to think through things and to um, actually what I would do is listen to music. And I listened to a lot of um, contemporary Christian music and worship music. And I had to find new words to define me because mm -hmm. what had mm -hmm. always defined me were her words. And so I, I'm a, a Christian and I believe in God and I, needed to hear his words to tell me who I was and really try to change my thinking from what she had always told me and find a new way to define myself. So I did that while I ran. <laughs> wow. Wow. I wish we had another two hours to, to chat on this podcast because I know you have so much wisdom in those cells of yours there, Trina. Um, but okay, I think this is a perfect time to talk about the future. So, you know, what's what's coming up for you now in 2022? Well, interesting left since I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, the Pacific Northwest has kind of been calling me with races. So I have gotten into the lottery for Cascade Crest, which is one of my bucket list races. I've been very excited about that race. And last year I was actually in to run Pine to Palm in Oregon and because of wildfires, it didn't happen. So it's rolled over. And so that is going to happen this year, hopefully. 
And then another race that I signed up for also in the Pacific Northwest was Orcas Island, which also because of COVID rolled over and they gave us a October option. And so I have three races all in the Pacific Northwest between summer and fall. With my biological mother passing away, I've also become extremely close with my dad, who's one of my biggest supporters, and my stepmom, who I call mom. She's very, very close to me and dear to my heart. And without them, I probably would not have survived going through all of that, right? They were, they live in the same town, so they were there with me. And I'm excited to go out there and spend more time with them because my dad's aging and so is my mom my stepmom and I really want to spend time with them while they're still in good health. And, um, so yeah, so it's exciting. That's I great. get to go to the Pacific Northwest, spend some time there, run some races there that are all bucket list races. All your wise, just check, 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 check. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's the Holy grail of, of the race season. Yeah. All right, Trina. Well, we are coming to to the end of this episode and, um, we, we do do rapid fire at the end of every episode. And I know with you being such a long time listener, you've probably been thinking about your answers to these questions for months. So what is your favorite running mantra? Stop listening to yourself and start speaking to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned that that is not just a mantra for running, but a mantra in life that we immediately think negative and we start listening to that and we need to be speaking to ourselves and not listening. Good one. Yes. It sounds so easy and it actually is so hard. <laughs> okay. Do you have a favorite place to run? Uh, locally? Yes. I like to run on what's called Kennesaw mountain, which has a really great, like six mile run with lots of elevation. Okay. What is your number one bucket list race that you've not done yet? Can I have two? Okay. So Western States, but it sounds so cheesy. Everybody wants to run Western States and I may never get into it, but Lavaredo is probably a close second mm. in Italy. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? So I, I think I'm going to go movie and I really love McFarland USA. It's the ultimate feel good movie. Yes. 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 Okay. Finally, what is your favorite post run indulgence? I don't know that I have one. I'm one of those weird runners that is not hungry after I run, but probably in my recovery, it's ice cream. <laughs> yes. Lots of calories and fat. Yes. And <laughs> and a million excuses why you can now eat it. Yes. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, this has been great. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Trina, and sharing your story and also some of your inspiration with regards to different trails to run. And we just wish you the best of luck in 2022. And I can't wait to run another race with you. I know we have to do that soon.